Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Block Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 5, Side 2. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. With the emergence of the Liberty Party in the 1840s, it was inevitable that the equal suffrage issue would come before the Constitutional Convention of 1846. This body referred to the question to the electorate, with results that were hardly surprising. In November 1846, the property qualification for Negroes was retained by a vote of 224,000 to 85,000. It is to be noted that in addition to the race and color factor, the Negroes' political inclinations entered into this lopsided tally. Negroes were Whiggish or Liberty Party-ish, and hence could hardly expect Democrats to vote for a measure that would add to the political strength of their opponents. The pattern in New York did not change for the remainder of the pre-war period, with Negroes pressing without success for equal suffrage. At a state convention held in Troy in September 1855, the delegates condemned political discrimination and proceeded to organize the New York State Suffrage Association. Stephen Myers was appointed lobbyist at Albany. In this capacity, he attended the sessions of the legislature, buttonholing most of its members. In February 1856, Myers reported that two-thirds of the lawmakers were favorable to extending the franchise. But either this figure was inflated, or a number of men changed their minds. Four years later, during another presidential year, the issue was still high on the agenda of the New York Negroes. The State Suffrage Association was now joined by a number of local groups, including the New York County Suffrage Committee, the Brooklyn Elective Franchise Club, the Albany County Suffrage Club, and the Elective Franchise Club of Ithaca. By September 1860, there were 48 local suffrage clubs in New York City and 18 in Brooklyn. But again, the voters turned down the equal suffrage proposal. The negative vote was smaller in percentage than in 1846, but there was no ambiguity as to the result. 337,900 to 197,000. Sorrowfully, the members of the State Suffrage Committee might have read again one of the lines appearing in a pre-election circular they had issued. 
Our white countrymen do not know us. They are strangers to our characters, ignorant of our capacity, oblivious to our history and progress, and are misinformed as to the principles and ideas that control and guide us as a people. The Negro in Pennsylvania had to undergo a political shock even greater than that of his fellows in New York. Down to 1838, many Negroes had voted in Pennsylvania, but this privilege was abrogated in that year when a constitutional convention added the word white to the suffrage requirement. During the extended debate, the convention had received a number of petitions on the issue, two from groups of Negroes in Philadelphia and Luzerne, calling for impartial suffrage. While the new Constitution was before the voters, the Negroes drew up a lengthy protest. An appeal of 40,000 citizens threatened with disenfranchisement to the people of Pennsylvania. Largely the work of Robert Purvis, it told of the role of the Negro in the history of the state and described his progress and his present condition. It bore an abolitionist flavor. We freely acknowledge our brotherhood to the slave and our interest in his welfare. Is this a crime for which we should be ignominiously punished? The very fact that we are deeply interested in our kindred in bonds shows that we are the right sort of stuff to make good citizens. Were we not so, we should better deserve a lodging in your penitentiaries than a franchise at your polls. Despite its erudition and its eloquence, the appeal did not change many minds. The anti-abolitionist outbreak at Pennsylvania Hall in May 1838, although not the work of the reformers, brought about an increase in sentiment against Negro voting. Hence, in October, the new constitution disenfranchising the colored man won decisive approval at the polls. The Negroes were dismayed, their mood deepened by the story of a white boy who seized the marbles of a colored boy, telling him, You have no rights now. During the 1840s, Pennsylvania Negroes kept the suffrage issue alive through county and state conventions. One of the latter, meeting at Harrisburg in December 1848, asked the white voters to petition the legislature, adding somewhat plaintively that, Our petitions can only reach the humanity of the legislator, while yours will instruct him in a course of action. At the annual meetings of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, Negro participants such as Purvis, Remond, J.J.G. Bias, and Thomas Van Rensselaer invariably got in a word condemning the disfranchisement of the blacks. The Negro protest was also expressed in petitions and memorials sent to the state legislature, the number totaling 81 from 1839 to 1851. The unresponsiveness of the state legislature led Philadelphia Negroes to take the unusual step in 1855 of sending a petition on a state issue to Congress. This memorial of 30,000 disenfranchised citizens of Philadelphia to the Honorable Senate and House of Representatives was a recital of the Negro's record of patriotism and good citizenship, his ownership of property, and his payment of taxes. But this appeal to the national legislature brought results as barren as those sent previously to the state capitol at Harrisburg. Nearly 20 years of such legislative indifference had a dispiriting effect on some Negroes. At Philadelphia, during the winter of 1856-57, two public meetings on equal suffrage drew small audiences of some 40 each. In New Jersey and Connecticut, Negroes held state conventions to obtain the suffrage. Such meetings followed a familiar pattern. 
the drafting of a document which listed the grievances of the Negroes, affirmed their right to vote through residence, military service, or tax-paying, and appealed to the white electorate's sense of fair play. The result was negative in both states, although in New Jersey the Judiciary Committee of the lower house brought out a favorable report. In the Midwest, the Negro protest against political discrimination was voiced in Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, and Wisconsin. In Illinois, the call to a state convention of colored citizens to be held at Alton in November 1856 stated the key issue in the opening sentence. First, we complain of being taxed without the right to vote. In Ohio, with its large black population, the outcries were louder and more sustained than elsewhere in the region. Ohio Negroes held seven state conventions in the decade before the Civil War, six of them at Columbus and one at Cincinnati. One of the Columbus meetings was held in the Legislative Hall, the Assembly having graciously granted the request by the Negroes. The most prominent of the participants in the Ohio Convention was J. Mercer Langston, offspring of a wealthy Virginia planter, graduate of Oberlin, and a practicing lawyer, having passed the state bar in 1850. Langston was a member of a small committee selected at the Convention of 1851 to visit Governor Reuben Wood seeking his support in removing the Negro's political disability. The State Convention of 1854 selected Langston to draw up an equal suffrage petition to the legislature. Langston's memorial was read at the State Senate meeting on April 14th, those who listened not finding it unworthy of their attention. In 1856, the State Central Committee of Colored People of Ohio appointed Langston as lecturer and agent to canvass the state in the interest of Negro suffrage, not only speaking but taking up collections and soliciting donations in the committee's name. But the idea of the black man as a voter was slow in winning converts. In 1849, Negroes had finally won the right to testify against whites in legal proceedings. But if Ohioans were ready for a measure of equality in the courts, this was not the case at the polls. To Negroes west of the Mississippi, this issue of testifying against whites took priority even over the privilege of voting. In California, the law depriving the Negro of his oath in court was the major topic to come before the statewide Negro conventions held in 1855, 1856, and 1857. At the first gathering held in Sacramento, the 47 delegates from 10 counties drafted an address to the people of the state clearly setting forth the problem. You have enacted a law excluding our testimony in the courts of justice in this state, in cases of proceedings wherein white persons are parties, thus openly encouraging and countenancing the vicious and dishonest to take advantage of us. The California petitioners were heartened by a message from Philadelphia Negroes who commended their brethren on the Pacific coast for their noble struggle for the rights of man. White Californians did not view the petition in quite this cosmic light. Like the people in the other non-slave states, Californians feared that the removal of restrictions on Negroes might lead to an increase in their numbers. In California, however, the already racially mixed population made it more difficult to discriminate against the Negro. Hence, in 1861, the law barring Negro testimony was repealed. But California was not ready to revise its policy of white manhood suffrage, its Negro voting restrictions remaining on the statute books until the 15th Amendment in 1870. 
And except for Wisconsin, this would be the case in all the other states where such restrictions existed. The denial of the right to vote was discouraging to black abolitionists. Most of them, however, took an optimistic, long-range point of view. Jacob C. White, speaking at the closing exercises of the Philadelphia Colored High School in May 1855, at which the governor of the state was the honored guest, stressed the point that although Negroes were not recognized in the political arrangements of the Commonwealth, they were preparing themselves for a future day when citizenship in America would be based on manhood and not on color. In the viewpoint of the Negro abolitionists, the whole struggle for human freedom embraced the rights of women. The legal and political discriminations against the colored man were shared by all women. Public opinion was in essence male opinion, and it had its fixed ideas about the role of women beyond the traditional categories of kitchen, church, and school. A joint convention of men and women abolitionists held in Berlin, Ohio in September 1849 moved Jane G. Swisshelm to mock horror. This is a precious state of affairs. Where are Mr. Masculine Prerogative, Mrs. Propriety, and Miss Feminine Delicacy? Negro reformers needed no one to tell them of the role of women in the anti-slavery crusade, particularly in fundraising. Hence, when the women's rights movement got underway in the 1840s, it attracted support from the more perceptive Negroes. In New York, few black leaders subscribed to Garrison's political views, but they shared his belief that women should be seen and heard in public life. At the first convention for equal rights for women, held in July 1848 at Seneca Falls, New York, Frederick Douglass gave a major address. He was the only man present who supported the suffrage resolution, seconding the motion of Elizabeth Cady Stanton that it was the duty of women of the United States to obtain the sacred right of the elective franchise. The statewide women's rights convention scheduled for Rochester in November 1853 listed Douglas and J. McCune Smith among the signers of the call. At the meeting, Douglas was one of the featured speakers. Jermaine W. Loguen was named a vice president, and the youthful, light-skinned William J. Watkins was appointed as one of the secretaries. Negro conventions held after 1848 generally seated women, although sometimes the delegates needed prodding. Women themselves were not loath to force the issue. At the Ohio State Convention in 1849, the women, led by Jane P. Merritt, threatened to boycott the meetings unless they were given a voice in the proceedings preferring not to remain as mute spectators. At the 1855 convention at Philadelphia, Mary A. Shad was admitted after a spirited discussion, in which she took part. Negro women abolitionists sensed the pivotal role of politics, particularly its relationship to slavery. In 1855, the Delaware Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Delaware, Ohio, pointed out that Negroes were subject to an atrocious and criminal system of political tutelage deleterious to the interest of the entire colored race and antagonistical to the political axioms of this republic. And Negro women, like their white counterparts, wanted to exercise political power directly, not through their presumed influence on their husbands, brothers, and fathers. Hence, the Negro women abolitionists believed in equal suffrage not only between the races, but between the sexes. Sojourner Truth was as much at home at a woman's rights meeting as at any other kind, 
her natural eloquence making one overlook her broken English. She invariably made a deep impression, although her listeners found it difficult to convey her language to a third party. One might as well attempt to report the seven apocalyptic thunders, wrote J. Miller McKim. Frances Ellen Watkins was of comparable dedication in the battle for human rights, but a contrast figure in appearance and style. Slender and graceful, with a soft and musical voice, Frances, too, could take a deep hold on the human heart. In October 1857, the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society hired her as lecturer and agent for eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and received glowing reports of her lectures until the termination of her appointment in May 1858. A reporter at Mount Holly called her the best speaker he had ever heard. A listener at Norristown, Pennsylvania, was just a shade less enthusiastic, rating her as the most eloquent woman he had ever heard except Lucy Stone. Frances, like Sojourner, had a little book to sell, but hers was not ghost-written. Her poems on various subjects, first published in 1854 and with a preface by William Lloyd Garrison, had a ballad simplicity and bore such titles as Slave Auction and The Fugitive's Wife. Francis was one of the signers of the Constitution of the Ohio State Anti-Slavery Society, an offshoot of the State Convention of Negroes held in Cincinnati in 1858. She pledged $10 to the new society and became a member of its committee to raise $500 for operating expenses. Charlotte Fortin, like Francis, was frail, introspective, deadly in earnest, and of a literary bent which in her case found its major expression in a diary. Charlotte joined the Salem Female Anti-Slavery Society when she was 17. She became a teacher at the Salem Normal School, of which she was a graduate, and corresponded with Garrison and Wendell Phillips. The latter, in a letter in January 1857, applauded her decision to stay in America and share the fight. She owed it to her grandfather, he added, referring to James Fortin. A lyceum and concert-goer, Charlotte attended a lecture, Fair Play for Women, given by George W. Curtis in Philadelphia in November 1858, going with her aunt, Harriet Purvis. The young Charlotte was delighted with Curtis, finding his lecture as much abolitionist as suffragist. One winter day in 1856, when the bitter weather prevented her getting out to a reformist lecture, she was disconsolate, explaining in her diary, I crave anti-slavery food continually. A worshiper of Charles Sumner, Charlotte walked on air one Saturday in February 1858 when she received two large envelopes from him, one of them bearing extracts from one of his speeches and the other containing eight autographs of prominent persons in England and America. Woman suffrage, white or black, was not achieved in antebellum America, and Negro manhood suffrage was limited. But Negro abolitionists maintained their interest in politics, realizing its importance in a country in which the voice of the people was deified. And in this popular chorus, the voice of the Negro was not completely stilled. In some states, the colored man could vote and join political parties, and in all states he could exercise the right of petition. The Negro's role as a voter and party worker was strongest in New England and New York, the Negroes in Massachusetts had been politically active since the emergence of the new abolitionists. 
A group of colored Bostonians attended a legislative hearing at the State House in March 1838, at which five white abolitionists, including Angelina Grimke, testified against slavery and on behalf of the free Negro. At a meeting held shortly thereafter, the Boston Negroes commended the State House sergeant-at-arms for treating them courteously, and thanked their white friends who testified at the hearing. Four years later, another breakthrough took place when Charles Lennox Raymond appeared before a Massachusetts House of Representatives committee to protest against Jim Crow on the railroads and steamboats. In his remarks, Raymond referred to the elective franchise, saying that if the Negroes in Massachusetts had it, he saw no reason why it should be denied in other states. A year later, the Negroes of Boston petitioned the legislature to prohibit segregation in public transportation and repeal the law against intermarriage. At New Bedford, the Negroes had a meeting in October 1839, pledging themselves to vote for no official from Governor Down who was not in favor of immediate abolition. A committee of 83 was appointed to visit the candidates for public office, putting to them a series of questions, of which the first two are typical. Is liberty the will of the Creator? Does Congress have the power to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, and should such power be immediately exercised? In Rhode Island, the Negroes managed to retain equal suffrage despite an effort in 1841 to push through a new constitution which eliminated the property requirement for voting, but also eliminated the Negro voter. Supported by resident Negroes like Alexander Crummel, a team of white abolitionists, along with Frederick Douglass, journeyed to the state late in 1841. The abolitionists and black supporters held a series of meetings, some of them broken up by mobs opposed to nigger voting. The Constitution adopted in 1843, however, had no race or color qualification for voting. Negroes increasingly voted throughout the state, but topped by the nearly 400 other registrants in Providence, their numbers were not large enough to win concessions from the political parties. It was in New York State that political activity among Negroes reached its peak, many of them being able to meet the property requirement. These qualified colored men were not likely to spurn a privilege like the ballot, particularly with the Negro press spurring them on. Rights of all urged its readers to get out and vote, admonishing them to make their choices carefully. Set an example for the whites, who were already, too many of them, politically half-crazy. Another editor advised unpropertied Negroes to save the money they spent on perishable finery at the clothing store in order to accumulate enough to enable them to go to the polls. The number of Negroes eligible to vote is not easy to determine. In New York City, the figure reached 250 in 1838. Six years later, there was a 1,000 total for the state. In 1846, abolitionist Garrett Smith set aside 120,000 acres for colored men, drunkards excluded, one of his purposes being the increase in the number of black voters. The Smith grantees eventually totaled 1,985. By 1850, the list of qualified colored voters had risen to 1,200 for New York City and environs. And whatever the figures, they do not tell the whole story. Many Negroes followed the advice given by suffrage-seeking organizations. If denied the right to vote yourself, try to influence others to cast their ballots for the right candidates.
Negroes eligible to vote needed no exhortation to exercise it. An organization calling itself the Colored Freeholders of the City and County of New York met periodically after 1838. At their first meeting, held in Philomathian Hall on October 29, 1838, they drafted two resolutions against slavery and one in support of Luther Bradish for lieutenant governor. Bradish had gone on record as favoring equal suffrage and passage of a law granting a jury trial to alleged fugitives. The public official that won the greatest admiration of the colored voter was Governor William H. Seward. A group of Negroes meeting in Union Hall in December 1842 sent him an address praising his anti-slavery stance, his refusal to render fugitives, his approval of the act establishing trial by jury in runaway slave cases, and the repeal of the nine-month residence law permitting slavery. In a gracious responding letter, Seward expressed his gratitude for the tribute. After 1840, the attention of the politically-minded New York Negro was drawn to the new political parties that took an anti-slavery posture. Interest in these new alignments was felt no less by Negroes throughout the North. Hence, while focusing attention on the relationship between Empire State Negroes and the new parties, it would be well on occasion to touch upon the wider scene. The first of these new political groups bore a magic name to Negroes, the Liberty Party. Founded in 1839, this body reflected the belief that the existing parties, Whigs and Democrats, could never strike a strong blow at slavery because their memberships counted hundreds of thousands of slave owners. Hence, only a new party could really push for measures repealing the fugitive slave laws, striking at slavery in the District of Columbia, prohibiting the domestic slave trade, and excluding slavery from the territories. By 1839, most abolitionists west of Massachusetts were ready for independent political action. In April of the following year, the new party selected James G. Burney and Thomas Earle, both active abolitionists, as its candidates for president and vice president. One of the earliest responses to the new party's nominees came from a group of Albany Negroes meeting at the Baptist Church late in April, with Benjamin Paul in the chair. After the standard denunciation of the property qualification for Negro voting in New York, the group called upon all colored voters to sustain Bernie and Earl in the coming election. The convention urged Negroes throughout the North to be politically active so as to hasten the consummation of our disenthrallment from partial and actual bondage. The new party won the enthusiastic support of the colored American, which generally furnished an accurate barometer of Negro thought. In the presidential election, Bernie polled barely 7,000 votes, but his followers were not to be discouraged. Six months after the election, the party's central nominating committee met in New York to select the standard bearers for the 1844 campaign. The committee members included Theodore S. Wright, John J.'s Will, and Charles B. Ray. Among Negroes, the most ardent of the early Liberty Party men was Henry Highland Garnett. At the convention of the Massachusetts branch of the party, which was held in Boston in February 1842, Garnett delivered one of the major addresses. A defense of the principles and goals of the new party, Garnett's speech was enthusiastically received, the Faneuil Hall audience constantly interrupting him with laughter, applause, and cries of, Hear! Hear! The delegates also listened to a plea for money from Lunsford Lane, 
raising $33 to help him purchase a member of his family. Garnett took his Liberty Party advocacy to the National Convention of Colored Men held at Buffalo in August 1843. His resolution endorsing the new party was supported by Theodore S. Wright, Charles B. Ray, and nearly 50 others. With only seven dissenting votes, the delegates gave their blessing to the Liberty Party, a circumstance that Garnett reported with pride at the national meeting of the party held two weeks later in the same city. At this Buffalo Convention of the Liberty Party, three Negroes took a prominent part. Garnett delivered an address on a resolution he had proposed, affirming that the new party was the only one in the country that represented the true spirit of liberty. Samuel Ringgold Ward opened one of the sessions with prayer and also delivered a formal address, and Charles B. Ray served as one of the convention secretaries. Two of the party planks referred to the colored man, one extending a cordial welcome to him to join the party, and another condemning racial discrimination as a relic of slavery. Garnet and Henry Bibb took the field for the Liberty Party in the election of 1844, the latter speaking mainly in Michigan. The party polled some 62,000 votes, which was a considerable improvement over the results of the preceding presidential campaign. But Theodore S. Wright found reason for vexation because many Negroes still clung to the old parties. Support for the Liberty Party of both Negroes and whites declined after the peak year of 1844. By the time of the next presidential campaign, the party had split into two factions. But the greatest reason for its declining fortunes was the emergence in 1848 of a new party, the Free Soilers, this party, too, owed its existence to the slavery issue. Democrats and Whigs, who opposed the extension of slavery in the territories, met in Buffalo in the summer of 1848 and organized a new party with the proclaimed goals of free soil, free speech, free labor, and free men. The question facing the Negro voter in 1848 was whether to support the badly enfeebled Liberty Party or the seemingly vigorous Free Soilers. The latter had chosen as its standard-bearer Martin Van Buren, a former president of whom Negroes had no fond memories. In his inaugural address, eleven years earlier, he had announced his opposition to the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia and his intention not to interfere with slavery wherever it existed. Samuel R. Ward took a strong stand against the Van Buren-led Free Soil Party, but the great majority of Negroes took a half-a-loaf attitude believing that it would be wiser to support the party that had a chance to win. In New York, the Free Soilers won more support from Negroes than any of the rival parties. They did much better in Massachusetts, where some communities voted the ticket almost unanimously. This was not the case, however, in Rhode Island. Here the Whigs issued a pamphlet reminding the Negro that it was they who had fought six years earlier to retain his right to vote. Such peculiar and local considerations operated against the Free Soilers in more than one state, thus contributing to its failure to carry a single one of them and to elect only five men to Congress. The elections of 1848, while hardly cheering to Negroes, had demonstrated that the old parties were splitting. This circumstance was viewed by the more optimistic as a proof of the progress of the abolitionist crusade. 
And despite their outcome, the elections had whetted the Negro's interest in politics and his desire to be a participant in its processes. This interest tended to remain largely in the Free Soilers. This party numbered such friends of the colored people as Joshua Giddings, Sam and P. Chase of Ohio, and Charles Sumner, Henry Wilson, and Charles Francis Adams of Massachusetts. In Ohio, it was the Free Soil Party that championed Negro suffrage, and in Massachusetts, it was Free Soil men who had successfully battled to remove discrimination in the marriage laws, in transportation, and in the public schools. Negroes attended the National Convention of the Free Soil Party in August 1852 at Pittsburgh, held to select presidential candidates. The speaker drawing the loudest applause was Frederick Douglass, even though he emphasized that slavery should be exterminated rather than merely contained as the Free Soilers advocated. Their party platform did not go that far, and it was silent as to the discriminations against the Free Negro. But for national office, the convention selected two men highly regarded by the colored people, John P. Hale and George W. Julian. In the closing weeks of the campaign, free soil Negroes throughout New England held a series of rallies in Boston, all characterized, according to William C. Nell, by great enthusiasm. At these gatherings, such political figures as Hale, Sumner, Giddings, and Horace Mann were praised, and the two old parties were condemned. The speakers, including J.C. Beeman of Connecticut and William J. Watkins and Jermaine W. Loguen of New York, called upon the colored voter to sustain free soilery and thereby advance the anti-slavery cause. A handful of Negroes, and not many more whites, remained with the Liberty Party, headed by Garrett Smith, the reformer philanthropist. Smith, campaigning for Congress, won a seat, but on a local issue unrelated to slavery. Otherwise, the elections brought little cheer to Negroes and abolitionists, the free soil vote being smaller than that of 1848. Anti-slavery political parties, however, were far from having run their course, the greatest one of all coming into existence in 1854. In that year, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, opening the door to slavery in territory where it had been prohibited since 1820, created a deep resentment in the North. This Nebraska business is the great smasher in Syracuse as elsewhere, wrote J.W. Loguen to Frederick Douglass, adding that the atrocious villainy of the author of the bill, Stephen A. Douglass, was doing a fine work for the slave, but no thanks to him. A group of Philadelphia Negroes, headed by James McCrummel, held a meeting condemning the act on the grounds that slavery could not be legalized, and praising the congressmen who voted against it, Seward, Chase, Sumner, Giddings, Garrett Smith, and Benjamin F. Wade. Negroes were not the only ones bitterly opposing the measure. Its passage prompted conscience Whigs and anti-slavery Democrats to join with the Free Soilers to form a new party, the Republicans. Its ranks grew rapidly, spurred by the news of the bloody conflicts that accompanied the opening of Kansas. Negroes as a whole hailed this newer and stronger party committed to the containment of slavery. But there were a few dozen colored voters who, like the Liberty Party to which they belonged, refused fellowship with the Republicans. With a stubbornness almost unparalleled in politics, the Liberty Party would not take itself out of existence. Despite its microscopic vote in 1852, the party scheduled two conventions in New York in 1853, 
the second of them at Canastota in October, with Germain W. Loguen presiding. A year later at Syracuse, 30 Liberty Party diehards, among them Frederick Douglass, went through the ritual of nominating a candidate for governor and declaring that it was the right and duty of the federal government to do away with slavery. The coming of the Republicans did force the Liberty Party people to make one change, that of experimenting with a new name. The Radical Abolition Party was organized in June 1855 at Syracuse, with J. McCune Smith as the presiding officer at the three-day convention. The party platform was indicated in the title of a lengthy statement drafted by the delegates, an exposition of the constitutional duty of the federal government to abolish slavery. The radical abolitionists held two subsequent conventions, one in Boston in October 1855 and the other at Syracuse in May 1856. Four Negro leaders took part in these gatherings, Smith, Douglas, Amos Beeman, and J.W. Loguen. The mass of Negro voters, however, made no effort to join the Radical Abolition Party, despite its name. They felt that its chances of success were remote to the point of fantasy, a prediction that proved all too true. This attitude of why waste your vote even affected Frederick Douglass, who in mid-August 1856 announced that he was switching his support to the Republicans. Like the great majority of Americans, white or black, Douglas wanted his vote to count for something more than the affirmation of an abstract principle, however noble. Compromise was unavoidable if a political party hoped to attract enough voters to win at the polls. Negroes soothed their consciences by reasoning that the Republican Party had a chance to win, that its victory would prevent any extension of slavery into the territories, and that such a policy of containment would cause slavery to die out for lack of breathing space. The Republicans looked less drab to the Negro when contrasted with the only major alternative party, the Democrats. A group of Ohio Negroes meeting early in 1856 voiced its support of the Republicans because the opposing party was the black-hearted apostle of American slavery. Later in the year, Henry Highland Garnett took the same position in urging New York State's 6,000 black voters to come out for the Republicans. Of all the things he hated to see, said Garnett, the worst was a black Democrat, although he had to admit that there were some colored men who were so ignorant and misguided as to favor these avowed supporters of the enslavement of their race. Negro support of the new party became even more solid after its opponents dubbed its followers as black Republicans. Whatever one party might call another, the key issue in the election was slavery in the territories. The Republicans lost at the polls, but their candidate, John C. Fremont, did amass a popular vote of 1,340,000 as against James Buchanan's 1,838,000. Such a large vote for the candidate of a party only two years old certainly augured a promising future, an optimism shared by the Negroes. Essentially, their policy was a continuing attack on the Democrats. At a convention of Negroes in Troy in September 1858, the 55 delegates avowed that they were radical abolitionists at heart, but that their strong desire to defeat the Democrats would lead them to throw their support to the Republicans. The convention appointed William J. Watkins as a traveling solicitor to drum up Republican votes. 
A month later, Watkins went to Cincinnati to attend the state convention of colored men. Here, at Union Baptist Church, he added his voice to that of John Mercer Langston and others to the effect that the Democratic Party must be destroyed. Support for the Republicans, while strong, did not meet with the same unanimity, Peter H. Clark asserting that the rights of the Negro were no safer with the Republicans than with the Democrats. Negroes in the Northeast, like those in Ohio and New York, gave their support to the Republicans. A convention of New England Negroes meeting at Tremont Temple on August 1, 1859, with George T. Downing in the chair, gave its endorsement to the new party. The delegates voted, however, to press the Republicans to give their support to the black man's struggle for the right to vote. By so doing, they pointed out, the party would deserve the support of all who favored the cause of freedom. By election time in 1860, the Negro vote was almost solidly Republican. Their only possible rivals for black ballots, the radical abolitionists, were weaker, if possible, than in 1856. And, as in that year, the Republicans, although making no effort to win the colored vote, were attacked by the Democrats as being nigger worshippers. Negroes, if only to strike back, almost had to support the Republicans. Thus did the colored man ally himself with a party that was not as much a working man's party as the Democrats were. But he could scarcely join a party that vilified him. The victory of the Republicans in 1860 heartened the Negroes and the voting abolitionists. There was, however, a sense of frustration over the decisive defeat, previously noted, of the Equal Suffrage Amendment in New York. We were overshadowed and smothered by the presidential struggle, overlaid by Abraham Lincoln and Hannibal Hamlin, wrote Frederick Douglass. The black baby of Negro suffrage was thought too ugly to exhibit on so grand an occasion. Hence, while the elections of 1860 were more favorable for the anti-slavery crusaders than in any preceding quadrennial campaign, it was evident that racial discrimination and its sustaining base of slavery still exerted a formidable influence. In striking at slavery, the abolitionists made use of a political instrument far more time-honored than the suffrage, the right to petition for a redress of grievances. Those whose voting privileges were restricted, as in the case of the black American, were particularly petition-minded. A state convention of Illinois Negroes held in Alton in mid-November 1856 urged the colored people to avail themselves of the right to petition inasmuch as it was the only constitutional guarantee now inviolate from the ruffianism of American slavery. Two years later, an Ohio convention of Negroes pointed out that the right to assemble and petition for a redress of grievances was one of the few rights left to colored people in the United States. Black Americans hardly needed any reminder of the right to petition, a practice they had been making use of since colonial and revolutionary war times. And they needed even less advice as to what to petition for, having during the course of the 18th century sued either for their personal freedom or, as in the case of Paul Cuff in Massachusetts in 1780, for the suffrage. The new century was hardly two days old when a petition from a group of Negroes from Philadelphia was brought before the House of Representatives. The petition, which had been circulated among Negroes by James Fortin and churchmen Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, asked the House to adopt such measures 
as shall in due course emancipate the whole of their brethren from their present situation. For a beginning step that might be taken, the petition mentioned a revision of the laws governing the slave trade and fugitive slaves. After two days of debate, the members of the House overwhelmingly rejected the petition, alleging that it asked them to legislate on matters over which they had no control. One lone member voted for the measure, George Thatcher of Massachusetts, whose championship James Fortin never forgot. With the coming of the new abolitionists after 1830, the use of the petition reached flood proportions. This book is continued on Cassette 6, Side 1. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.